This is The Kicker, CJR's podcast about all things media. I'm Pete Vernon. Two topics for you this week. Later, we'll dive into the mystery of what happened to Tucker Carlson with Liz Lenz, who wrote a profile of the Fox News anchor for CJR that has gotten a lot of attention in media circles. It is not just about his journey from respected conservative magazine writer to screaming Fox News host, but also about how we ended up at this point in politics in America in 2018. But first, I'm joined by Noska Renner, CJR's digital editor, who has a piece up this week about the confessions of fallen men. In the past week, John Hockenberry, a former host of The Takeaway, and Jan Gomeshi, a former Canadian radio host, published first-person pieces in major magazines detailing their experiences after losing their jobs due to sexual harassment allegations in Hockenberry's case and sexual abuse allegations in Gomeshi's. We'll get into the thought or lack thereof that went into publishing these pieces in a bit. But Noska, first, it's great to have you here. Hi, happy to be here. Happy to be back. And second of all, uh, you made a really insightful point about the form that these men's stories took. Yeah, I find all of the conversations around these pieces to be totally exhausting. And I actually sort of hesitated to weigh in myself into the take machine. Well, that's but, why we brought you here to the this <laughs> to continue blazing hot studio that we call the Tate Machine. <laughs> um, and so I was sort of reflecting on what exactly was so exhausting about the conversation, and I realized that when we're talking about the content of these pieces, the fact that these couple of men are basically, you know, they're talking about their lives and how their lives have changed, and they're sort of wrestling. In Gomeshi's case, he's wrestling with the way that fame started to interact with his behavior toward women. In Hockenberry's case, he's talking more about what he sees to be the downfall of romance. Neither of those arguments I take too seriously, but I started to feel like the arguments about the content of the piece just weren't getting through to people, that everybody who was arguing about it on one side or the other there was no communication. And it struck me that actually the form of these things alone really speaks to the divide that's happening in terms of the conversations around Me Too. What's upsetting to many women and to people who support the Me Too movement is the way that these two men in particular and, and others are sort of given free reign to write quite long personal essays about what has changed in their lives, sort of like adding an introspective edge to Me Too. And that really stood out in contrast to me to the way that women's accounts are treated. And I think that there are many reasons for this. Like, I don't think it's straight up sexism that the news media, you know, quotes and fact checks and sort of dissects what women say and presents their accounts in a really protected way. Like, I think it, in the end, it's it's a good thing. There's legal reasons for that. And it, and it is a totally protective measure for the women who are speaking out. But if you just look at the form, it, it is striking the difference between the way that men's accounts are treated and the way that women's accounts are treated. And I just wanted to call attention to that divide in the hopes of communicating to the people who don't understand what the problem is, that there really is a difference here. Yeah, the, the piece lands on this really beautiful, beautifully written paragraph that I think sums up the argument you're making really well. I'm going to quote you. from it here. Uh, you write, the confession, when made by men showing a sensitive side, is a literary device to display a newly whole, unified character who is stronger thanks to introspection. 
Women, however, have the reverse experience. To ensure that their accounts are bulletproof, they are quoted rather than given space to describe their experiences in their own words. Their abuse is not entitled to be literary, only their abusers. And that kind of paragraph was, uh, I'd read the whole piece, this is where it ends, and it really is a gut punch in realizing, oh yeah, I mean, I, I was focused on the content and saying, yeah, well, Gomeshi completely brushes aside some of the more serious accusations. He says that he's been cleared legally and therefore it's time to move on. And Hockenberry goes into this kind of tortured uh, exploration of the death of romance. Of Lolita. <laughs> yeah. oh, well. Of whether or not Lolita would be published today. Right. Yeah, th this idea that men get to speak, even men who have been accused, who have lost their positions in, uh, in public, get to speak and give their side of the story. And they both talked about, oh, it's been so tough. It's been a long time. And I'm sure it feels like it's been a long time for them, but it really hasn't. It really hasn't. And it's not just about who gets to speak. I mean, everybody can speak. It's who gets like a, a platform that is considered important and is sort of marked as respected. Yeah. We should mention, I didn't say this in the open, but Gomeshi's piece appeared on the cover of the New York Review of Books. And, as part of a series on fallen men. Right, as part of this series. And Hockenberry's was in the pages of Harper's. So these are not minor platforms that these, they're not putting blogs no. out into the world here. And in fact, New York Review of Books, I, I haven't looked into the archives, but I'm, I'm quite certain that they rarely publish uh, they do publish personal reflections online, but I don't think that they often do it in in the print in the print issue. And speaking of the New York Review of Books, there was a, a really insightful uh, interview with the editor in chief Ian Baruma by Slate's Isaac Chotner, who pressed Baruma on the decision to publish this piece by Gameshi. At one point, Baruma says the exact nature of his behavior, how much consent was involved, I have no idea, nor is it really my concern. So, Noska, you're an editor. <laughs> Do you understand at all where the hell he's coming from with this? I think what was going... Okay, if I had to give the most, like, charitable, the most interpretation. charitable interpretation of what was going through his head, I would say... Something that he did say in the Slate interview, which is that he saw a, an, an account that was not being published elsewhere, that he saw in this an opportunity to sort of add to public discourse by publishing something that couldn't be published elsewhere. The fact that he didn't like look into like why it wasn't being published elsewhere is... It, I just find it to be slightly embarrassing that he couldn't answer those questions. I, I'm not sure what led him to say that, like, it, it seemed like he didn't even know what the allegations were in reading the Slate interview. No, it didn't seem like he had done any sort of research beyond the fact that, oh, well, in a court of law, this guy was cleared and then he made an apology and moved on was kind of the framing he put, put it in. Yeah. And, and you know, I'm, I don't want to seem like I'm in the camp where I think that like these men have nothing to say ever again. I, I think that would be a mistake. I do. And I said this in the piece, like I do think that the questions about what contributes to this extremely screwed up version of 
how men think that they have to act in public to be considered men, whether it's the fame thing or the romance thing. Like, that's a totally interesting question. I would have cut their pieces down to like three sentences each and incorporated it into a piece that was actually just taking that head on. So I, I think that Varuma seemed seemed to me like he didn't understand the stakes of public discourse and actually what needs to be contributed and what really is unsaid at this time, which in my opinion does have to do with who men are in this society. But that's that's a personal <laughs> that's a personal belief. No, and I share your belief that we are not just going to completely write off these figures and that there is a way to explore their experiences that would be valuable. Uh, if there was someone speaking with great introspection, that's valuable in a reported piece or an essay. Uh, there was not a lot of introspection from either of these men, though. And so not only do I wonder about the decision to publish, but I, I was kind of skeptical of the editing that did or did not go into these pieces. Well, it's just like what what's necessary now is not the individual's account of what's happening. What's necessary now, like the question that these editors, I assume, all have, it's a question that I have, is like how is the sexual harassment that is now coming up over the course of the past year, how is it so rampant? How is it that most women I know have an experience that that speaks to the current moment. How is that the case? And rather than trying to answer that question, the fact that they published these long, I do think that they were introspective pieces, but they were introspective in sort of the wrong direction. It was sort of like it, it had way more to do with guilt and reckoning and the impact of having an allegation like this made against you rather than something about the way that they were contributing to this culture as a whole. Right. And that's the big question that goes beyond individual accusations and individual figures, right, is what is it about our society and men in our society specifically that has brought us to this moment? And I do, I, I don't know, I, did you read Michelle Goldberg's piece in the New York Times? I did not. I thought she had this excellent piece over the weekend in the Times. Uh, she wrote, here's a confession. I feel bad for a lot of the men caught out by the Me Too movement. And she goes on to say, not all of them. Some are beyond the pale. Uh, but she says, I can only imagine how disorienting it must be to have rules changed on you so fast, have your reputation obliterated in an incident, and to suddenly be unable to do the work that gives you your identity. But then she says, I don't think many of these men feel bad for the women. And I thought that was a really perceptive point in that there is something interesting. There's a question here to be asked, to be explored about these men for whom the rules have changed so quick. And that doesn't, to be clear, excuse the behavior that has been alleged or admitted to in, in these cases. But that is an interesting question. What I didn't get, again, from either the Hockenberry or Gomeshi piece and why I thought they should not have been published, in, at least in the forms that they were, was that there didn't seem to be an introspection on their part for the impact that these actions, whether they were admitting to their own or exploring the larger moment, have on women. Yeah. And it was funny that this sort of gets back to the point about form, that at the very beginning of the Hockenberry piece, he talks about how none of the women that he reached out to who had made the allegations against him responded to him. And he I was very offended by that. He was very offended. And and. I found that to be, I mean, first of all, totally 
lacking in empathy, but also lacking an understanding of exactly what we're talking about, which is the way in which like what like what was he expecting? He was expecting them to come forward to him and and have like a huge conversation. It's clear that women can't speak about these things in the way that Hawkenberry wanted them to or I don't know, I'm sort of wrestling with this as we speak, but it just seems like he wasn't understanding what the weight of women's silence really is. I think that's the place where an editor or if the piece had been done differently, where a reporter could interrogate that. Right? If he said that to a reporter, I think the follow-up question would be, well, do you think they owe it to you to speak to you, to respond to your questions? <laughs> yeah. Or just like, how did you try to reach out to them? Did they not respond at all? Or did they say that they didn't want to speak to you? Like, there's so much sort of left uninterrogated about the style and form of how he was trying to interact with them. Well, and this brings us full circle to the point of your piece about form. It's that self-interrogation only goes so far. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think self-interrogation can get us a long way as a, as a student of therapeutic process, but I do think that there's a reason that we don't publish everybody's diary. There's a lot of internal processing that one should go through that doesn't actually need to be publicly seen. And I think it would have been more protective of the men, actually, if if the editors had just said, look, you need to get like a year more into this and then like then let's see what you have to say. Well, the piece is up at CJR.org. It's called On the Confessions of Fallen Men. Noska, thanks so much for coming down and talking. Thank you, Pete. I'm joined by Liz Lenz, who wrote what is literally my favorite piece that CJR has published in the two plus years I've been working here. It's titled The Mystery of Tucker Carlson, and it explores how a respected conservative journalist devolved into the voice of the aggrieved white male shouting at viewers through the TV screen. Liz, thanks so much for talking and congratulations on a great profile. Thank you so much for your flattery. I appreciate it. (laughs) So I wanted to start with a brief excerpt from the piece. You write, quote, The question, what happened to Tucker Carlson, is worth answering. If we can figure out how an intelligent writer and conservative can go from writing National Magazine Award-nominated articles and being hailed by some of the best editors in the business to shouting about immigrants on Fox News, perhaps we can understand what is happening to this country, or at least to journalism, in 2018. So at the end of the piece, you admit that you're no closer to finding answers than when you started. But I have to ask, even if you don't have answers... Do you have theories about why Tucker Carlson has become what he has? Well, I think that the answer in the piece is not an answer to the question, as you say, but it's more of a a full understanding of who he is and who he has always been. That I think actually my argument there is that there was never a good Tucker Carlson. Hmm. Um, that, but of course he is, he's a talented human who was an amazing writer, but as I go through in the piece and like, and I read a lot of his early writings, um, and his book, and it was so just so blatantly honest that it was there all along the racism, the sexism, um, that it was it was always there we just didn't see it and i think we're in a different america 
So it seems like we have a different Tucker, but really we just have the same person. We're just seeing him a little bit differently. And, of course, the context of what he says is different. So it, it feels more glaring. It feels more garish. It feels more offensive now. But just because he's shouting it on Fox News doesn't make it any more racist than he, when he was writing it uh you know, in, in policy review, basically saying, oh, civil rights were bad for black people because, look, now they're not rich anymore. So I think that is the answer. Not that he's changed, but this, our way of seeing men, our way of seeing people in America has changed. Yeah, I mean, this is something that I've heard about Tucker before, and you mentioned it in the piece, that there's this idea that he's really uh, an intelligent guy who goes and knows what people wants and he likes money, so he's found a way to make a lot of it by putting on a mask, by adopting this persona. Mm -hmm. And you say, but yeah, when I spoke to him, not on camera, for an extended period of time, you couldn't see a difference. Yeah, of course, you know, there is the argument, is this a put on that has become a thing? Or, you know, the Hamlet question, like, if you pretend to be crazy, do you become crazy? That's that whole like Shakespearean drama that I think is the compelling question of him. And also, by the way, the compelling question of America, too. Um, have we always been this awful or did something change? But I had still just gone in expecting to have this like completely rational, genial conversation. And what ended up happening was just like this bizarre two hour, like not not even real conversation, just kind of like swirl of words, word soup that was being dumped on me. And and um, and then two days later, his PR person called very concerned about the interview, which, you know, I just thought had been trash and I'd been yelled at the whole time. And and but and so then when she called me concerned, then I was like, oh, well, I wonder what made them so worried. And so when I got the transcript back, I like went through it with a fine tooth comb and realized, oh, no, no, there's something here that. I, I didn't see before because I was getting screamed at. Right. And I want to dive into that conversation, what you actually got from him in a minute. But I guess one of my first questions is, why did he talk to you? You said he it was <laughs> two hours. And I'm just wondering, yeah. I mean, what what do you think motivated him to uh, get on the phone and give you this time? I don't know. I, I, I really like I really hope he wonders about that, too. Because up until this point, I've done a couple profiles for CJR, but I'm not famous. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, know. you've written a few pieces, uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, I, I specifically yeah. this Liz one. If he had done his homework, he would know that he was walking into a conversation with someone who's not afraid to put people on blast. You're right. Like, I think if the Fox News people had done their homework, they would have realized that I had done this profile of Louis Dvorkin mm -hmm. and Chris Lizza. But that was what was so interesting, Pete, was that when I ended up um, talking to the PR person, she read the Lizza profile and was delighted by it because, of course, you know, they don't like him. And part of me feels like maybe that's the only thing that they read. But no, what had happened was I had said, okay, I'm going to try to write this profile. And so I immediately reached out to 
people who I know who are well connected and said, okay, I'm going to try to write this profile. And uh, a person uh, emailed me back immediately, just no, no response, just with Tucker Carlson's personal email address. <laughs> and, uh, and that was it. And so I was like, oh, okay, I have buy-in here. People want me to do this. So I took a couple of months and uh, formulated an email to him that that was very that was designed to interest him. Um, I did my research. I tried to find out who he was, what made him tick, and uh, did a bunch of background phone calls and a reading. And then when I sent him this email, which took me two months to compose, and I had like people look over it for me. Uh, that was just basically like um, I was upfront about who I was. I was very brutally honest, like I am a mom in the Midwest. Yes, I am liberal, but I have been married to a conservative for 12 years, and um, and everyone around me is conservative, and I see your influence, and I want to understand it. And that was basically the um, the email. And it wasn't a lie, but it was it was kind of thrown down like a challenge. And I think. Carlson likes a challenge. And so within two hours of sending that email, he had responded, yes, let's do this. Uh, and I also, maybe I shouldn't say this out loud, but like, I think one of the great things about being a mom is people underestimate you. <laughs> so, I, or at least I feel that way in professional contexts. You know that if you just like talk about your kids and your babies, then people think like, oh, she's, oh, she's a mom, you know. And so, did I, did I, <laughs> did I use my kids as accessories to get an interview I wanted? Maybe Pete, maybe. Um. <laughs> <laughs> well, so you you mentioned using uh, your kids and your own personal experience yeah. to get the interview. But you also put that in the piece, which is something interesting and, and something that doesn't always happen in profiles. And I was interested in why you decided to put a little bit of your own life story in there, often as a contrast to Tucker's. Yeah, I didn't I didn't initially want to. One, I thought it was going to be very unprofessional to do so. Um, and two, I couldn't see why it would be necessary. But but because of the way the interview happened where, you know, if he said something or if I tried to challenge him on something, he would just change the subject and he kept talking about free speech. And, you know, even if I even if I was like trying to get a real answer, I, I was just not finding a way to access that um, if, if it was there at all, to be honest. So so in writing it, I felt like. I needed to find a way to balance, to ground, you know, the words that he was saying. And what had happened in the interview was because he and I are both in media, it's like when he would make these great claims, like, oh, I'm just doing it for my family. I'm just doing it for money. I'd be like, well, but but you don't need money. You know, he'd be like, oh, no, no, I need money. Diapers are so expensive. I'm like, your kids are all grown up, you know. And he'd be like, well, 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 you know how it is. I'm like, no, I actually don't know how it is. Like, everything that you're saying is not identifiable to me. And um, and so I wanted some way to contrast that because, again, 
I, I see in him a metaphor for, again, what's happening to America. But and and if he's supposed to be this voice of the common man, I wanted the voice of the common man to be in there, and that just ended up being me. Um, uh, right, and t- the irony. My, yeah, yeah, the irony is is that I'm the liberal elite when I'm struggling just as much as you know, any normal person, and then here's this person calling me out for being liberal and elite who is actually the embodiment of elite. It's just, it's so mind-boggling, and I didn't know how else to contrast it and call it out. Right, and another interesting decision along with that was to include his publicist, uh, which publicist, for those who have not done interviews with kind of big-name journalists, uh, Publicists are often part of the process. They're often sitting next to that figure when you're talking to them, um, but they don't always make the cut for the profile. But you made this PR person from Fox News a character in the story. Yeah, there's there is this like gentleman's agreement, gentleman's agreement, such a terrible phrase, but that that's what it is, right? Like that the PR people don't appear in the story. But I also feel like we're in a time in a place where I think we're being hampered by the discourse of civility. And I also think the discourse of civility is being held up by one side and the other side's completely railroading it. Um, And so I didn't set out to bring that person into the piece, but her like her strong armed efforts to control what I was writing became a real problem. And, um, and, and this person never asked to go off the record um, and never, and so there was that right away, you know, if she had asked to go off the record, none of that would be in there, but she never did. And I recorded many of the conversations. So, um, it, you know, it's just a matter of record was at this point where I was like, fuck politeness. You know, if, if, if you're going to do all of this behind the scenes to try to manipulate and try to control what I'm writing and what I'm saying, then I'm going to call you out on it. And um, and that's how we get scenes of her calling yeah. and yelling at you or calling after yeah. the interview to make sure that you know that Tucker yeah. isn't racist. Yes, which was so baffling to me that, you know, because actually in the interview, I hadn't really set out to ask him, are you a racist? I had asked him about criticisms of him and I'd asked it very vaguely, you know, uh, how do you respond to criticism? And he immediately said, I'm not a racist. And, uh, and so that, that's what like when I went down that kind of rabbit hole of conversation and then she called and was like, I hope you know, he's not a racist. And it was just incredible to me that, well, he is, and that, you know, and that that's, that's the one concern, you know, of, of all the many concerns <laughs> that that was the one. Yeah, and you mentioned the response you got from other journalists. Uh, I'm also interested in the response you got from Tucker's fans. Uh, you reached out to some of them and included their thoughts in the story. So what did you hear from them after the piece went up? Uh, mostly silence. Um, a lot of the Tucker fans that who I spoke to were people in my own life, and they didn't make it onto the page. 
um, for many, many reasons. But I had done a lot of work to find Tucker fans with that I wasn't related to, that I hadn't previously uh, been joined in in a marriage with, <laughs> and uh, and you know we're just in another part of the country and another part. So I I worked hard. Like I joined all these Tucker Carlson fan Facebook groups and was spent a lot of time messaging people, and um and then you know found people on Twitter and spent a lot of time DMing people and. Um, and just trying to track people down. So I think I only used two voices in there, but those two voices represent at least 10 other people who are willing to go on record with me and, you know, talk about why they love Tucker Carlson. And, um, and, and I let them, you know, I let them know very clearly of most of them, their first question was, are you one of those liberal media people? What'd you say? And I, yes. Well, transparency lie. is a good thing, yeah. Well, I, I, where does it get me to lie to them? You know, um, of course, I am a liberal and I am in media. I hope, you know, I hope that I do the, my best job. But it was interesting to me because it was part of that contrast where they were saying, are you a liberal media person? And to them, that was an insult. But to me, it was, well, sure. You know, that's like right. who I am. It's just like if they had said, are you a feminist? You know, for them, that would have been an insult. But for me, it'd be like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's just my identity. And I actually think my complete honesty disarmed them a little. They were like, oh, 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 you're not going to deny it. Okay. Um, and so after the piece went up, the there was one person, um, and he and I had had a dialogue and I will give him points. He was really trying hard to win me over to his side and, uh, and was not insulting me in the process. Uh, and, or at least wasn't trying to insult me in the process. Um, and, and after his and after the piece went up, he, you know, said it was very interesting and, um, but he was going to wait and see what Tucker said before he decided anything about it. And uh, <laughs> I just let it, I just let it go at that. But after that, you know, no, then after the piece went up, I got kicked out of almost all of the Facebook groups. And, uh, it's probably and, fair. Uh, I mean, you know what? Fair. I was, <laughs> I was honest why I was there, but I have heard from other Tucker fans who, you know, are, are not uh, happy with me and my, and my garbage. Uh, so, yeah. But I, I actually thought I'd get more hate. Yeah. Well, so you, you mentioned to me when we were talking earlier that you don't have cable. So I'm interested right. after this dive into the dark heart of the cable news landscape in 2018, what you feel like you've discovered, if anything, um, about politics and journalism in this era of Trump. Well, I think what is really um, what's a real problem is that so much journalism on television and probably in print too, although maybe not quite as much, is couched as opinion. A Tucker is a journalist. 
But for Fox News, he is an opinion. They consider him, you know, um, they consider his segment opinion, not journalism. But he does a lot of journalism on there. So the line between opinion and actual journalism is very, very blurred. And so I think that does news a disservice. And since the majority of people consume, get their news from television, that becomes even more of a problem. And I think one of the things about the news today is we're so worried about like Facebook and like, and, and you know, those stories and the conspiracy theories and the lies, but I, and, and those are of course of concern, but if you look statistically at how people consume news, TV is still the king and, and it's making so much money and the people on there are making so much money and and yet and yet you know there are stories that aren't being told and so i think about all the work that journalists are out there doing you know the david Farenfolds and uh, who are just doing this like incredible work but it's not, it's not they're not on tv so people don't know um, and people aren't caring and uh and so that's really that's really disheartening and i also think because of in, in middle america too i think it's easy to realize like to forget that on the coast people have and in cities with 97% of people have access to high speed broadband internet in the middle of the country it's a little different and um you know access is 57% of people uh, in rural areas have access to high-speed broadband, and that's just access because it's more expensive here. So the idea of, like, who's seeing the stories that are being put out there and what's being consumed was, I think, a thing that made me really stop short while reporting this. And um, and also, you know, when I would talk to people who I work with in media, I'd be like, oh, right, it's Tucker Carlson, they'd be like, oh, yeah, that guy. But when I talk to normal people, uh, you know, they'd be like, oh, yeah, his show's great. You know, so it was just this, it was just a, a reminder of the divide and the forces that are compelling what stories are being read and consumed and what aren't. Right. Well, it's it's a depressing divide, but the piece is excellent. It is at cjra.org. And Liz Lenz, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to us. Thanks, Pete. That was our show. Thanks for kicking it with us. Thanks, as always, to Noska for making the journey down to the studio to talk with us, and to Liz Lenz for checking in from Iowa about her excellent Tucker Carlson profile. Please check out both of those pieces up at cjra.org, as well as all the other great work there, and we'll see you next week.